You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Avoiding Real Estate Turbulence. This is your pilot, John Lafferty, with Century 21 Town & Country. And this is your co-pilot, Tony Abate, with Ross Mortgage. And we, we are, are your real, real estate pilots. pilots. Our job is to be your real estate advocate and also make sure that you're educated about the buying process. We'll keep you informed throughout until we get you safely closed. In real estate purchase, there are many reasons that a sale can encounter turbulence. Today, we are going to discuss a few of these bumps that can occur. Having an experienced team like Tony and I will help you steer through the turbulence. Now, one of the things that can go wrong in a real estate transaction is that a buyer has switched jobs or is in a particular industry where tips are a part of their income or their income fluctuates. So, Tony, when you're coming across buyers like that, what are some things that you're looking for in order to help them get qualified or to let them know up front there's some changes or some things that they need to do in order to purchase a house and they're better off doing those because they may qualify for a higher purchase price? Right. So no two home buyers have identical financial uh, circumstances. Everybody has their own uh, makeup and, and way of making money. And from a mortgage perspective, what a loan underwriter is going to look for that's, uh, that's, that's looking to approve the loan is consistency and the ability to determine that that income is going to continue in the future. So uh, when you're looking at job changes, a lot of it has to depend on the job that a person is changing into. If a person is changing into a salary role, that's a pretty easy uh, to predict type of income stream and underwriters are generally going to be comfortable with that. However, if you've got a situation where somebody is is going into, uh, well, any income situation, it's going to have variable pay. That might be an hourly type of income where it's not full-time, or maybe it's commission. Uh, maybe it's like you said, they're relying on tip income, uh, or maybe it's seasonal work. Uh, what we have to look for in those kind of situations is a, is, is a, is a two year average. So, um, you know, all those income streams can be used for qualifying, but when it's variable, we do need the average in that over two years. And so in short, uh, a recent job change into something where the income is going to, to be stable and predictable, you're generally okay. It's going to be a variable stream of income, uh, tip income, uh, well, tip income is a different category because it, it's cash and that can be a different challenge. But uh, hourly uh, pay, commission pay, uh, seasonal work, that's where we need to get into the two-year averages. What about in the instance where a buyer changes industry? Mm -hmm. So let's say they're an engineer. They worked for General Motors or Ford for 20 years. They just got laid off or bought out or let go, however you want to put it. Mm -hmm. They move into a different industry altogether. They decide to become a teacher or, I don't know, something else. Is that going to affect them qualifying? Is, is, there, is there something that an underwriter might look at and say, well, they changed industries. What if they decide after six months that they don't like it and they want to do something else? Is that taken into account or is it as long as it's a stable job that it doesn't matter? The stability is the key, John, and uh, when you, 
the, the circumstance that folks are in right now is that the person that has that employment for a 25 or 30 year span with the same employer, that's becoming more the exception than the rule. And if we can establish not only the consistency, but a common sense scenario, underwriters are going to be okay with that. So the example that you talked about where a person got laid off, they have to do something. They have to make some sort of change. And if the change is something that makes sense, then the underwriter can walk away with that saying, hey, this is going to be reliable and consistent. Then the fact that it's a, that it's a, a change in industry uh, or a change in job, job description, that's not necessarily going to be held against the borrower. And along the way, you know, all the surrounding things are looked at too. So if a person has been able to maintain their credit and still pay their bills, even though they've made that job change, and we know what that salary is going to be, because again, that's, that's key, salary versus variable income, uh, then an underwriter is going to be okay with that. Okay. Understand that part. Now we have somebody who's a bartender mm-hmm. and or a, a waiter or waitress, and their income is picking them out thousand dollars a week, mm-hmm. and with their tips, they're pulling in another four or five thousand uh, a week. Uh, obviously, they're working at a high end mm-hmm. restaurant or something. How do you figure that out? Are you looking for consistency in the tip amounts and and how much that varies to determine what they qualify for? Is there a percentage of that tips that you use? Help me understand how uh, a lender and an underwriter are looking at those two things in order to figure out what they qualify for. Sure. So, so one of the rules of thumb with uh, getting mortgages approved is that Cash transactions, either money coming or going, presents difficulty. It just does. Uh, there's no way to really paper trail it effectively, uh, no really way to, to, to source where that money is coming from. And so it's hard to say, uh, well, you know, here's that deposit from the tip income. Was it really from the tip income? You just can't do it. Now, there's a couple things uh, that happens with folks in, in that, uh, that type of industry. And John, to your point, sometimes that tip income is really substantial. Uh, they've been in that field for a long time and they rely on that to pay their bills. With some service industries, some or all the tips are are reported on W-2s. And when that's the case, then we absolutely can use that uh, that income. We average it because there's slow periods and, and busy periods, and, and the averaging helps balance out those highs and lows. When it's pure cash, it's going to be very, very challenging to use that tip income as, as, as verifiable income for mortgage qualifying. There's programs that will permit it. Uh, you tend to get into uh, – uh, I'll back up. The programs that permit it are, are what we call bank statement programs where we're basically looking at income based on deposits in the bank statements. Those, those loans are going to be more expensive because they're considered riskier propositions. You're a bartender or you're um, – there's, there's a, a gentleman that I know that's an entertainer mm-hmm. in one of the his communities and generally gets paid in cash for what he does. There's a time when he wanted to purchase a home and had more than $30,000 mm-hmm. in his sock drawer, let's just say – that he he couldn't use he, he he didn't want to put it in the bank because he didn't want to necessarily pay taxes on mm-hmm. it 
What do you do in a situation like that when you're a buyer and you have this cash in your drawer? Maybe you don't trust banks. Mm-hmm. Maybe you you believe the old stuff it under the mattress theory mm-hmm. more than trusting a bank with your money. What do those people do when they need to – when they have it but it's not in a bank? How, how do you source it? How do you use it? Can you use it? What right. happens in that situation? Right. So we're switching gears a little bit and, uh, and now talking more about that undocumented uh, money being used as an asset as opposed to using it as an income. And there actually is an out for that. Uh, FHA home financing, which is which is very very popular uh, and and offers competitive rates, uh, has always recognized that there's going to be a subset of the population, and that's just how they handle their finances. Uh, to your point, they may not trust banks, uh, etc. So what happens with that is is a home buyer can't straddle the fence. They can't say, well, I have this money in my sock drawer because I don't trust the bank but then have a banking relationship at the same time where there's <laughs> ongoing right. things. So you're either yeah. in the pool or things you're not don't in the add pool. Up. Right, right, right. So if they're, if, they're using, if they're using that money and we can document and make a common sense case out of the scenario that says it's reasonable based on the income that we've been able to document that, uh, that they could accumulate those savings – uh, then FHA will permit that. Um, there's going to be explanations in the file. Uh, it all has to make sense, uh, but we can do that. Where where we where we can get into a challenge is if the income stream is also not documentable. So when you when you couple those two, you've got a little bit of a perfect storm. So you've got an income stream that you can't document, and then you've got cash that you can't document. That's going to be tough. But if we can at least document the income stream, and the person says, "Hey, here's what I'm making per month." Uh, I've been doing this for for three years, and I've put away eight thousand dollars in my safe, and I don't bank. We can work with that kind of scenario. FHA financing is the tool, uh, but again, what the underwriter is going to look for is: does this whole thing make sense? Is this is this a pattern that's reasonable? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I've heard. Lenders talk about instances where you have somebody that's been a renter for a long time and actually using their canceled checks Mm -hmm. that they paid rent with and utilities with to help establish uh, a pattern of payment and that I've also heard lenders talk about, threshold, with regards to what kind of payment they can um, I, I guess withstand or handle per mm-hmm. month. So, for instance, I've heard it said that if you're paying six hundred dollars a month and you're buying a house where your mortgage is going to be triple that or quadruple that, that those are things that lenders take into account because of different variables. Mm-hmm. Is, is that something that? Where's the tipping point, I guess, in that where where it becomes a factor in determining whether or not to approve somebody for a loan? Sure. So so in the industry, we call that payment shock. And it, and it kind of goes back to conventional wisdom that we all know and have been taught over the years. And that is, if you're going from a situation where you have no housing expense into a situation where you have a substantial housing expense or modest expense to substantial, 
it's just what the name implies, and that's a payment shock. And so uh, usually that in of itself doesn't have any firm limitations, but it's added to the mix, and we can call that a compensating factor. So I'll give you an example, John. If somebody maybe has some marginal aspects on the loan, at, we're, we're, we're going to reverse the situation here, and, and maybe things are a little bit tight. Maybe their credit's a little bit uh, uh, kind of close to the edge, and maybe the ratios for debt versus income are a little close to the edge. But if they're going from a $1,000 per month rent payment to a $1,000 mortgage payment and we verify that that, that person has made their $1,000 rent payment on time religiously for the last year or two years, then the underwriter can say, you know, there, there's a handful of things that I, I, I think are a little bit iffy, but we've got proof that this person has sustained a payment over time. That can be a tipping point for a mortgage approval. Um, there's not a line in the sand that says if your payment goes from this to this, that in and of itself is going to be a, a, a you know an impedance to getting the loan approval. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a common sense factor that an underwriter will throw into the mix. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Um, kind of staying with this. I've had lenders say to me in the past that if you're a seasonal worker, Mm -hmm. if you're laid off – so for instance, if you're on the road paving crew for a construction company and once the winter hits and snow hits, you're pretty much done until weather breaks in the spring when they can get out and start doing paving again Mm -hmm. or um, um, you're a lawn care person, you work for a landscaping company, you get laid off when the weather changes unless they do snow plowing as well. Can can we can a lender use their unemployment income because they're probably filing every year when they get let off? Can you use that unemployment income as part of their income? And then how do you how do you qualify somebody who gets laid off every year pretty pretty regularly? Sure. Yeah. What do you do when you're a lender? How do you figure that out? Well, you know, I think I think the news to the people that is listening is don't not have the conversation with a lender and a real estate agent simply because that's the nature of your income. There is a workaround. As we sit here in Michigan, John, exactly what you're talking about is really prevalent, and it's it's prevalent on a couple of levels. Number one, like you said, it's it's seasonal uh, employment due to just that seasonal aspects. It gets cold, and 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 landscapers can't work, uh, roofers may not be able to work, etc. On the other hand, you have the automotive industry where where certain plants or or companies there's going to do a shutdown for a period of time and they've done it religiously. So the word of the day that I'm circling back to is consistency. So if a person, we'll use the landscaper as an example. So so this landscaper, they are going big guns through the summer. They're working 50, 60 hours a week. They're racking up the money. And then when the snow falls, they're done and they're going to get that unemployment. So what do we do in that kind of situation? If we go back to that two-year threshold, like we talked about earlier, uh, we're going to average. And so we're going to say, you make this much when you're landscaping, you make this much when you're unemployed, it's documentable, we're going to average the whole mix out, and that becomes your qualifying income. So those folks absolutely can buy a home. The other piece of that equation, John, is... Uh, are they managing their finances during that downtime? And if they are, you know, they're not getting into late payments because they're maybe under a little bit less unemployment pay than their summer pay, then the whole thing makes sense. They've established that stability and consistency. So those folks absolutely can get a mortgage. So the thought there is then two years minimum. What if they're only in it for a year? Uh, that's going to be really challenging. You're probably looking at a circumstance with uh, uh, with the need of a cosigner. 
uh, to maybe give some backing to that. But let's, you know, let's take out the mortgage guidelines from the mix and just look at it from a common sense standpoint. If you're in a variable income situation, like many of these fields are, where they're hourly, there might be a lot of overtime, and you've got one year of, for lack of a better term, experimenting with that, that's a little dicey. You just don't know if that's going to be a consistent pattern. But when we've got a couple cycles, here are seasons, here's a season of working, here's a season of unemployment, here's another season of working, here's another season of unemployment, and those numbers are consistent or hopefully rising, now we're building into that make sense scenario. Okay. In your opinion, just as a lender, how important is it for you to know most of these guidelines frontwards, backwards, and sideways, what benefit does that provide to a buyer having a lender that knows Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines? Because that's where most of them are sold anyways, right, on the secondary mortgage market. Um, How important is that as a lender to have those tools at your disposal when you're sitting down with a buyer Mm -hmm. at a restaurant or Maybe even at your office where you don't have to go to a computer and look up a guideline. But there's something ticking it off in your head that, hey, uh, this this may not work out. Yeah, John, we live and die by it. It is absolutely critical. And uh, and I'll I'll express a little bias here. This is a difference that you get from working with a local experienced lender uh, that uh, that does swim around in these guidelines all the time versus uh, you know the the online larger national uh, lenders that are filling in a blank. It's absolutely critical because one of two things happen: either uh, if if those guidelines aren't explored in the dialogue with the potential buyer. here's what can happen. Either a person who really could be buying a home ends up not buying a home because that dialogue doesn't happen and we don't explore, uh, or a person has said they they could purchase a home or told that they could be purchased a home and they just can't because the lender has not peeled back the onion on, well, what is going on here? We know you're making $50,000 a year, but oh, what do you know? 35,000 of that is genuine income and the 15 is from unemployment. Uh, absolutely critical. It can either it's the difference between getting a home buyer into a home, or getting you know because they do qualify, or getting a home buyer into a contract and them not being able to close because they don't qualify. The lender didn't ask the proper questions. And of course, when that happens, everybody points the finger at the lender because you're the one that sure. qualified them in the first place. So you have an angry buyer at you. Mm-hmm. You have a buyer agent who's mad at you because mm-hmm. the listing agent is mad at them for saying that this buyer qualified. And then you have a seller who's angry at the listing agent for getting him to accept an offer from an unqualified buyer. And that's really one of the reasons why, uh, you know, just a a plug for you, why why, uh, I think you're one of the best ones out there is because you. you, you go the extra mile when it comes to qualifying a buyer, talking to them, figuring out what they want, and then going through the process to figure out if they can qualify for that. Yeah. And one of the things that I like that you do too for buyers that I've sent to you and we've worked with is you're their advocate and their cheerleader. So when a listing agent calls you to say, hey, what's tell me about this buyer. Are they qualified? Have you pulled their credit? Have you verified their income, their assets? Are we going to have a problem? What's their credit score like? Now, there's obviously things that you can't disclose, right, right. like credit score and rating and, and, and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. But just having 
you on the other end of the, in the phone and your enthusiasm for your clients, your, your your buyers is really helpful when you're a listing agent. It tells it tells me as a listing agent, I don't have to worry here. These guys yeah. are these guys are going to be smooth sailing and. And I also feel like I've got a relationship now with you kind of. And if I have a question or there's a hiccup, right. I know that you're going to call me and tell me that mm-hmm. there's a hiccup and here's what you're going to do to resolve it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, John, for starters. And and that's a uh, that's a big deal. Um, you know, we have to have that dialogue. It, mean, it's, it, it can mean the difference between getting the deal or not getting that deal and, and getting the home or not getting the home. And uh, that's a conversation that we absolutely have to have. And we put buyers through the paces at the beginning of the process so that we can't avoid that turbulence and then have that positive conversation with the agents on the other side of the deal. And those are many of the reasons why I send uh, most, if not all, my buyers your way. You. And if they don't happen to – if there's a product that doesn't work for them that you can't offer, the mm-hmm. thing I like about you too is – you're not afraid to pick up the phone and call another lender no. and recommend them to that buyer to go talk to them because you know they have a product that will work for what they're looking for. Right. Not but, a lot of lenders do that. They let their ego get in the way <laughs> of doing that yeah. and and when they lose that buyer, get really upset. But yeah. you're not like that yeah. and that's one of the great things. And I think that's why a lot of buyers are willing to come back to you is for that reason because you're not – uh, you're not too proud or or your ego isn't too bruised to send them to another lender if you can't help them the best way that you know somebody else could. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, no lender can be the jack of all trades. Right. And at the end of the day, it's it's what can we do to help that consumer get them into that home, avoid the turbulence, and uh, and make the right things happen for the home buyer. Hmm? All right. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. My name is John Lafferty, and I'm with Century 21 Town and Country. And I am Tony Abate with Ross Mortgage. And we'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast and avoiding real estate turbulence.